What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's definitely the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amir Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History at Penn State University. And today I am joined by three of my brilliant co-hosts, Jess Luther, freelance journalist, author, and newly minted PhD candidate at University of Texas, Austin, Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress in Washington, D.C. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the NFL draft, Nick Boza, and the politics of evaluation. And then we will switch gears, and for what feels like the 312th time, we will look at two recent cases of violence, abuse in the sports world, and the all-too-tepid institutional responses. Lastly, Jess talks to Anne Floor Maxer, a freeride world champion snowboarder who recently directed a new documentary about Iceland and gender equity entitled A Land Shaped by Women. Last month when it premiered, Jess talked to Maxer about free ride snowboarding, her fight for gender equity on the tour, and why she became interested in Iceland. But first, so we are still in the midst of both the NBA and the NHL playoffs. I don't know if you guys have been watching NBA playoffs. You know, we had Dame Lillard's like last minute bucket that became an instant meme. But I have to admit, I've been more enthralled with the NHL playoffs. The first round of the NHL playoffs was wild. We had sweeps. We had game sevens that saw the exodus of both Stanley Cup finalists last year, and all four wild card teams advanced to the second round. So the NHL playoffs is like full of drama and intrigue, and I'm super into it. Are you guys watching either of these playoffs? I'm watching a little bit of both. I have to say, I am now more invested in the NHL because my Carolina Hurricanes upset the Stanley Cup champion. Yes, they so- did. I yeah, this is this is fun. I grew up a really big <laughs> hockey fan and it's definitely I have not kept up with that. I'll be the first to admit, but I'm fully on the bandwagon. I remember being in Prague studying abroad when the Carolina Hurricanes actually did win the Stanley Cup, which is something that people forget happened. And like <laughs> watching all the games at like <laughs> ridiculous times in Prague bars and convincing people to put on the games because you can convince people in Prague to do anything at a bar. But yeah, I'm super excited. <laughs> I have been doing what I call twitter watching it where like i just take in the highlights like i watched that three-pointer at the buzzer like 16 times in different videos online i saw a little bit of nhl stuff and then i did through like just osmosis of being in central texas i knew that the spurs had a game seven and i just now found out that they lost it to the nuggets but you know i just sort of was i'm taking it in that way i haven't been actively watching it this time I'm, it's it's the finals of La Liga. 
(laughs) (laughs) They just, Barcelona just won yesterday. And so I can now turn my attention in a different direction, but I've been, I've been a bit absorbed. So I haven't haven't kept up. Uh, Amir, I have a question for you. How are you feeling? You know, I have felt like the Celtics team has been so wildly inconsistent and frustrating. So I've basically been ignoring them. And so I just am kind of still doing that and like letting them surprise me. I'm more focused on the Bruins who, because of this (laughs) topsy-turvy first round have like a clearer path now to the Stanley Cup, which everybody's very upset with (laughs) because like we've already won the World Series and the Super Bowl this year and the Bruins weren't particularly great this season, but they had a strong first round and they unfortunately last lost last night in overtime. So the second round series right now is tied 1-1. But you know, it's their pathway looks so much clearer now. And so I think that's giving people the fits because it would just be a lot of excess of riches. This is the most obnoxious conversation I've ever had with anyone. (laughs) I am so sorry I asked. (laughs) I am so sorry I asked. (laughs) I I walked into that one. I'm sorry, listeners. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I was like, oh, this is so nice. And nobody's teasing me. And they're like <laughs> liking and supporting my fandom. It's a new day here on Burn It All Day. It's, it's not. It's not. <laughs> Last week, we saw the spectacle, glitz, and glamour that is the NFL draft. This year, a record-setting number of people packed into Nashville, Tennessee, switched it up a little bit, to see the draft take place. It was typical. It's the NFL draft. You either watch it and consume it or, like me, generally don't care for it at all. But it was, you know, featured perplexing early round picks, including Daniel Jones of Duke QB, while other more projected and talented players were perhaps left on the board. This spawned a treasure trove of memes trolling the New York Giants and reactions from Giants fans who are absolutely flabbergasted by this move. It also featured, you know, what we've come to expect from the draft, images of people joyous in the next chapter of their career takes off. And of course, we have to talk about Nick Boza. Lindsay? They, you know, we have to talk about Nick Bosa, right? So he was a second overall pick and he is a defensive end out of Ohio State, I believe, who is a big Trump supporter, um, big MAGA guy. You know, he has tweeted in the past, he's tweeted things insulting Beyonce, insulting like Black Panther, and insulting Colin Kaepernick, calling Colin Kaepernick a clown. He's also... Followed a surprising number of white nationalists. Yeah, if you look at his likes, which of course people have, he has, you know, liked a lot of homophobic things. Now, some of these like four or five years ago, but liked a lot of things with the N-word in them. You know, I wrote about it yesterday, very racist, very homophobic. And when asked why he deleted some of this activity, his answer was, because I realized I might be drafted by San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't because I've had a change of heart, you know, because I've done soul searching, because I'm a different person now, because, you know, I've grown and learned. It was literally because he realized 
he was probably going to go number two overall to San Francisco. His a- he did go number his two agent overall did to it. San Francisco. I heard him say. Huh? I heard him say his, my yeah, agent did think, it like, for with- me. <laughs> yeah, but I think like that, like probably with, with consultation. So I think that, you know, it's been fascinating to see how people talk about this. Um, he attempted a little bit to distance himself from these tweets and from this stuff in an interview when he went to San Francisco and did his like welcome interview, you know, he said, he he kind of said like, I've changed a lot. If I hurt anyone, I'm sorry. And then you have to go, we'll put it in the show notes and read his explanation for the Colin Kaepernick tweet. He tried to pretend like it didn't have anything to do with the protest. Like it was just like, he was just randomly thinking that Colin Kaepernick was a clown and just like tweeted it. (laughs) It's it's really, really ridiculous. Ridiculous. But as he's like kind of trying to distance himself a little bit from this, the president of the United States tweets congratulations to him. Congratulations to Nick Bosun being picked number two in the NFL draft. You'll be a great player for years to come, maybe one of the best. Big talent. <laughs> San Francisco will embrace you, but more importantly, always stay true to yourself. Make America great again. I literally cannot believe that this is it's such shit. Life. It's this is such real life. shit. <laughs> I loved it so much, though, because it was like, I pictured like, (laughs) you know, Nick Bosa being like, that was good. That was a good press conference. I feel like I'm, you know, starting to put a little distance between myself and this. (laughs) 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 I kind of loved it for for that reason. But I want to know what you guys think. Uh, Amir, if you watch the coverage, I don't think ESPN touched on this really at all in their coverage from what I read. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's some of the stuff that people have started pointing out, which is like, what is considered too much for teams? What's considered a dra- uh, distraction? What, you know, we've seen people fall in, in draft stock because a picture comes out of them with a bong or, you know, freaking Myron Roll got a Rhodes scholarship and people questioned his commitment to football and he drops multiple rounds, right? And so we've seen this happen. We've obviously seen what's happened to Colin and Ridiculous. And then with this, you have various accounts out there of executives and quotes from people saying, oh, we didn't, you know, it wasn't an issue or we didn't ask him about it because it wasn't, you know, relevant or, you know, what gets to be what's permissible as, you know, political engagement that isn't seen as a distraction. Like, and people, the same people will say, oh, it's not that we, you know, it's not about what Colin's saying is the fact that there's media attention around this. Well, I've read multiple articles about Nick Boza. So there's also media attention around him. The freaking president is tweeting about him. And yet that's an okay distraction. That's an acceptable distraction. My kids are so loud. The hypocrisy so, is, yeah. is just appalling. Right. It's just appalling. Yeah. And it's, you know, what? it just goes back to like, what do people have to be accountable for, right? And this isn't the same, but I just think about how in these interviews, right? And in these this these big researches, investigations that these guy that these teams do into these top players, they always just they're looking for the answers that they want and they're really not willing to dig far enough. You know, I think about how they didn't ask Bosa about about these tweets, really. You know, they didn't really engage. They just asked people who had worked with him before if he was like a nice guy, you know, <laughs> like, you know, did he hate people at work? You know, they didn't challenge him. They didn't really make him be accountable for it. Reminds me a little bit of when there's a really, really talented player who has, I don't know, 
hit, uh, you know, beat his girlfriend or been accused of sexual assault. They never reach out to the woman. They never reach out to, you know, people who might have differing opinions. They're like, oh, well, I talked to his mom and his mom said he was a nice boy. So, you know, we did our due diligence. <laughs> and yet at the same time, we know that Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed, they have been asked in meetings, they're always asked, are you going to take a knee during the national anthem, right? Like that has been a part of the scouting process for them. And beyond that, you've had players like Dex Bryant, you know, Des Bryant, who was asked if his mom was a prostitute. Right. You've had people like Cam Newton come and sit in meetings and then say, like, do you have tattoos? Don't, are you getting tattoos? The invasive questioning. I mean, and that's the thing about the draft that really, like, I was jesting about it before. But the reason I don't like it is because it's just a part of a system that's exploitative. And all of the scout analysis is based on um, tropes a lot of the time. And so even with draft grades and all of this stuff, you know, there's if you have a white kid, it's still grounded. Like you'll still see the coded language of is he scrappy or is he surprising? All of this stuff, but the invasiveness and the presumptionness, the presumptiveness of how the player sitting in front of you might fit into your locker room, what you're looking for, what you're evaluating. I mean, the the execs in these rooms, the teams in these rooms, we already know what those front offices look like, and so what they're doing is really like it, to me. It's when you pair it with the combine, feels like just chattel assessment like it, it's really uncomfortable to me and that's you know that that's really where where my can can i just yeah, respond Brad? to that yeah i i actually think that it's more insidious than Lindsay. you're even saying i would go further and and say not only are they not interested in questioning or talking to people who disagree they know quite well that this person will do well with a certain brand of NFL fan. And I think I think they're perfectly fine. They have no moral compass whatsoever in terms of racism and sexism of these players. They're perfectly happy for Boza to capture an audience that is racist and sexist. And 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 they think that is actually a moneymaker, especially with fantasy. And it is. And so I would say, quite honestly, like, I don't think it's just not doing due diligence. I think it's being perfectly happy and acceptable to have a number of of high profile white players. And I'm thinking Tim Tebow, who who will sell to a particular crowd. Right. No, totally. And there's, you know, more evidence of this this year. Um, there was a report out of AJC around the Falcons oh, first yeah. round pick, Caleb oh, McGarry. Yeah. And they had an executive, anonymous executive that said, quote, the tackle has been socially awkward. It's going to be a stretch for him coming in because he's not a bad kid. He's just socially awkward. He's from a small country town. He just struggles. He's going to struggle being in a big city for a while. And when asked there's, you know, did he have so, uh, social media stuff like Nick Boza, whatever? The executive said, no, he's done some stuff that's just been socially awkward. You know how one day they play country music and one day they play R&B in the weight room? Well, it was a country day and one of the blacks turned on R&B. He got pissed off and cut the cord to the whole speaker system in the weight room. All of the whites and the blacks were pissed off at him because they couldn't listen to any music. Socially awkward stuff, not racist. He just has to grow up. That's like borderline abusive stuff. I mean, like, to destroy <laughs> property because you're so mad about the Blacks' music. I mean. I want to hide under a table. That makes me just, <laughs> like, that makes me so uncomfortable. And they just Woo. say these things out loud. Oh, man. Out loud. Exactly. 
Jess? Yeah, I want to wrap up by talking about the number one draft pick this year. Yes. Who did not get a Donald Trump tweet, probably much to his satisfaction, if I had to guess. Um, (laughs) Kyler Murray. And he it was his. It was a big historic moment because Kyler Murray is now the first player ever to be taken in the first round of both the NFL and MLB drafts. He actually gave up. He was drafted number nine by Oakland, the Oakland A's in the MLB draft. And I think he gave up like I read somewhere like four point six million dollar that he was supposed to get in the MLB to go play football, which, you know, it was his choice. It's a decision. It's a decision. Um, <laughs> This reunites him with Cliff Kingsbury. I don't know how Kingsbury is a coach, though, but whatever. We've talked about that before. He was drafted number one to the Arizona Cardinals. It was a strange pick in that they already had a quarterback that they had drafted, I think, was it last year at number 10? They they immediately traded Josh Rosen Rosen to Miami the next day. But I just want to give props to Kyler Murray. I mean, to be that good in both of those sports is one hell of an achievement. And I look forward to seeing him at the next level. Again, we never know how these guys are going to do once they get there. People are continuing to point out that he's only five foot 10 inches tall. They're worried about that, but he's a hell of an athlete. So it, it should be fun to watch him. Yeah, totally. And and I think that that is the thing. I will watch any video you send me of people being very excited and happy, especially surrounded by their family. On yeah, me too. Night. I love that stuff. So that's the stuff that I do buy into. There's who couldn't celebrate because he was his son was watching something on his lap. Oh, oh I didn't see that one. About. Yeah, I have to find it where he he was saying he was happy, but he couldn't celebrate because his son was streaming <laughs> some movie on his phone on We've his lap, and there. he didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, those are those are the moments. Like if we could throw everything else out and keep like the 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 joy that would be i'd watch that i want to issue a warning about the content that we will be discussing in this next segment we'll be talking about harm and abuse sometimes in graphic detail so in the last few weeks we've seen cases in both tennis and football of people acting in harmful and abusive ways and the ways in which their respective sporting institutions have failed, honestly, to respond to this. So to get us started, I'm going to toss it over to Jess to give us a little bit of background on these respective cases. But I do want to give background on both of these cases just so everyone knows exactly what we're talking about here. So the first in the NFL, this is Tyreek Hill. We've talked about him before. In August of 2015, Hill, he's a talented wide receiver in college at the time. He's 20 years old. He pleaded guilty to punching and strangling his then-pregnant, then-girlfriend, Kristen Espinal. He received three years of probation, had to attend an anger management class, had a 52-week batterer intervention course, and was under supervision for two years. He was kicked off the Oklahoma State football team, but the plea allowed him to remain eligible. He eventually transferred to West Alabama, and when he was drafted 165th overall in the 2016 draft by the Kansas City NFL team, he was the first West Alabama player to be drafted since 1974. In September of 2018, right around the same time that Hill completed his probation and the domestic abuse charges were dismissed and his record expunged, he got engaged to Espinal. Six months later, in March of this year, Kansas City opened an inquiry into Hill after local news reported that Hill was under police investigation for battery involving a child. This is the same child that Espinal was pregnant with 
back in 2014. Earlier this week, the district attorney announced that he believed a crime was committed against Till and Espinal's son, but that he can't prove which parent did it. Espinal is currently pregnant with twins. Within a day of the DA's announcement of no charges, a local TV station obtained a reported recording of Hill and Espinal. Quote, the recording is believed to have been made in early March when the parents were walking through Dubai's international airport. KCTV5 was told the recording was an insurance policy for Crystal Espinal. Espinal had sent it to at least one friend for safekeeping after she took it. In the 11-minute recording, she says their son says, Daddy did it, about his broken arm. Hill denies this. Espinal says their son is terrified of Hill, to which Hill replies, quote, you need to be terrified of me too, bitch. The criminal case against Tyreek Hill and his fiancée, Cristel Espinal, has been reopened. Hill's been suspended indefinitely by his team. And I want to remind everyone, as we do anytime we talk about Kansas City, this is the team of Jovan, um, of Jovan Belcher, who in 2012 killed his girlfriend, Cassandra Perkins, and then died by suicide in the parking lot of the Kansas City Stadium. Two, um, or earlier this week, Kansas City got Frank Clark in a trade with the Seattle Seahawks. Clark was dismissed from Michigan's team in college after being arrested for domestic violence. The police report in that case is a really disturbing read. Clark pleaded down from first-degree misdemeanor charges for domestic violence and assault to a charge of persistent disorderly conduct. So that is the Kansas City NFL team right now. The other big story running alongside this one is Justin Gimmelstab. If you aren't a diehard tennis fan, you probably haven't heard of him. But he's a force in men's tennis. I really want to stress this for people who don't know him. He is a former pro tennis player. He won the 1998 Australian Open and French Open mixed doubles with Venus. He left the tour, went on to blog for Sports Illustrated. He commentates for the Tennis Channel. He currently coaches Trump-loving American player John Isner. I believe Shireen threw him on the burn pile a while ago. And Gimmelstab is one of the three current ATP, which is the Association of Tennis Professionals, the main men's tennis governing body, board representative, which is elected by the ATP Player Council. This is an important position on the back end side of tennis for men. Okay, background on Gimmelstab. A year after his retirement, he went on some sports radio show and did a big old sexist rant. He called Anna Kornikova a bitch that he wouldn't want to have sex with because she's such a douche. But, quote, I wouldn't mind having my younger brother, who's kind of a stud, nail her and then reap the benefits of that. He called two other female players sex pots and another a well-developed young lady. He was suspended from the Tennis Channel in 2010 after he compared a player's poor stroke to President Obama's policies. In 2016, his wife sought a domestic violence restraining order against him, stating he, quote, physically assaulted, harassed, verbally attacked and stole from her. He denied it. He's also been accused of planting cameras in her bedroom to record her having sex with other men so he could show their son. Most recently on Halloween last year, he savagely beat a friend of his ex-wife's in front of that man's wife and child. Over a three-minute period, Gimelstab punched the man over 50 times in the head while yelling, I'm going to fucking kill you. The man's wife told the court this week that she was pregnant at the time, but due to the stress from the attack, later miscarried. Gimelstab pleaded no contest which is neither a guilty nor a non-guilty plea, and he really refuses to take responsibility for it. Tennis Channel made him take a leave of absence last year. It's unclear when that will end. Isner has defended him. Andy Murray, everyone's favorite feminist, said this weekend that Gimmelstab should quit his role on the ATP board. What do we do with these violent men in sports? These are both horrible stories with long histories, and here we are. They're both very good at their jobs, but like, We've talked about this before, but, like, should that matter? No. (laughs) (laughs) 
In an ideal world, it wouldn't. Look, this is all so difficult to talk about. And, you know, reading back through this week, reading back through the Tyreek Hill police report and a lot of the stuff that's been written about him since, about ways that, you know, the redemption narrative that's really been thrust on him since, um, has been really, honestly, it's been triggering for me in in a in an unexpected way because it just not because I've been through this you know exact situation luckily you know I have not but it goes back to what I was saying earlier where we we want to see the convenient thing to see in people right even when there's no proof there and you know Andy Reid wanted to see that Tyreek Hill was completely reformed because Andy Reid wanted Tyreek Kill to be contributing for him on the field. Did the Kansas City Chiefs put any, you know, there was a lot of talk when he was first drafted about ways that he had been helped for his senior year of college, you know, and classes he had been attending and things like that. Was Did the Chiefs put any of these things in place in order to really provide Tyreek Hill with support? Was, and specifically his wife and son, was anyone checking in on them? Was there any outreach to the fiancé? You know, what was the organization as a whole doing? Because in my opinion, when you take on, I'm not saying you can never take on someone with a violent past. But when you do, I think you have an increased level of responsibility there. And as of right now, the Chiefs still haven't dismissed Tyreek Hill. And I don't even know if that's the thing they should do, because we know that unemployment is a mitigating factor in all of this. And, so and it just she's gets, pregnant. And, and she's pregnant again, right. Yeah. And last time she was pregnant, he punched her two-month-old pregnant belly. Excuse me, but that's what happened? And strangled like, that's her. The details, which is of the police report, a really dangerous precedent. So I am just heartbroken over this. I think one of the things that for me is most frustrating is watching how slowly the needle moves, and then how quick people can easily say, "Oh, see, he's awful." Now that there's recording, and. It just, obviously, you know, we did this with Ray Rice um, over and over again, but it it reminds me, there's a a group in Memphis that worked on uh, MLK 50, and they they wrote this response, they wrote this piece to basically critique where we were 50 years after his assassination, but they have a line in it that always hits me so hard in the chest, and they simply say, oh, so you say your little brother was shot in the back by police before social media? And it hits me in the chest because it just speaks to the fact that if it's not documented, you know, does it happen? And I think that that's what frustrates me the most with this is to see people not react or, or play the fence or, you know, look the other way over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden there's a recording or there's video evidence and everybody's like, Oh, now we have to act. Oh, the team has to act. Like, this is not actually, like, new. It's not, you know, in a lot of the cases, it's not information teams didn't already have. So what you're reacting to is not the action. You're reacting to the reaction of everybody else. You're worried about optics. And she knew that. That's why she recorded it and sent it to a friend. 
right? Like she's hyper aware of how people think about her own credibility. And she's begging for help, you know, even if she keeps going back on it, right? Even if she keeps doubting it, there's a part of her that needs to be rescued, right? Like she, she's, she's trying to take some steps and then because of fear, because of, I'm sure financial commitments, because of the grooming that goes on with abuse, because he's the father of her child, like, because of so many reasons, she keeps going back to it, but she's terrified. I mean, I don't think, you know, like, you know, that's why she's recording this stuff. And it just, I don't know. I mean, after the things that Tyreek Hill confessed to doing to her, like, on the record, the fact that people thought it would be as easy as a few counseling sessions, I think really shows how little people understand about domestic violence. I just want to say that something that really caught my eye during this, and I, I, you know, it's one of those things that you almost don't want to read and look through because it is really painful, was that Tyree Kill started his college career at Garden City Community College, which might ring a bell for you because it's the very same place where freshman football player Braden Bradforth died. Oh, um, yeah. Because of medical distress. Yeah. And whose mother still hasn't gotten answers about his death. And the reason I want to bring that up is that these things happen beyond sports, but there are institutions that guarantee that this will continue to happen. And it starts way before you get to the Kansas City football team. And it's it's a culture of dehumanization that applies to the players and encourages their dehumanization and hatred sometimes towards women as well. And I'm not I'm not trying to simplify what happens in these cases, but we need to look at the very corrupt institutions that will only respond in these ways when there's public outcry that are only interested in public relations. And those institutions are not going to solve this problem. And when people like sort of cry out for punitive measures, I understand all of that. But I think as Lindsay was alluding to, there's something deeper and bigger and and more painful that needs to be supported in terms of metamorphosis. Yeah. Jess, you want to... Just real quick on that, really quickly. It's worth noting that Kansas City is the same organization that employed Kareem Hunt, right? Who we saw the video of him hitting women. And it's also the same organization where Jovan, the most tragic, you know, with Jovan Belcher, who just continues to be at the center of some of these, you know, case after case. And I I think that's worth noting. Yeah, I just, and I don't want to leave Gimmelstab out of this because... The thing about this is tennis is a really, it feels to me, and Lindsay can talk to this a lot more, but from the outside and a little bit I know, it seems like a really small world. It's pretty insular. Like, people are not speaking out against this. I mean, I noted Andy Murray, I think Amelie Moresmo, some of, you know, of leaving up to women, that mainly the men. <laughs> I just want to talk about the men. He's basically, no one is calling <laughs> for him to face any real consequences for this. John Wertheim, who you all know, I know, I've, I've worked with him. I respect John a lot. He wrote a piece about this for Sports Illustrated this last week, and it was pretty wishy-washy. You know, he implies in, in the piece that he knows stuff about Gimmelstab and the situation that we all don't know. He obviously works with him. They're colleagues at the Tennis Channel. 
it doesn't when I look back and I mean I just went over it in the intro and I see the history here I don't know like it hurts me on some level that people can't just men can't just come out and say that this is unacceptable that they will not accept this that they will not stand alongside this person who not only has apparently hurt his ex-wife he clearly beat the shit out of that man he has said horrible things about women i mean i just like I don't know. I just, it's my frustration of like, what does it really take? And I get that this is a small space. It is hard to speak out against your friends. I understand all those dynamics, I guess. But like, where do you, where do you draw the fucking line? How are these people making, like, get a line? <laughs> I don't know. It just, it makes me very sad. And obviously, it mad. literally feels like the entire tennis community has like Stockholm syndrome when it comes to Justin Gilmostad. Like, they just like he's exploited every single power le- lever like in the sport and cozied up to all of the right people. Ken Solomon, who runs a tennis channel, who then also that means tennis.com now because tennis channel owns tennis.com. Like, he still has as his header on Twitter a photo of Justin Gimmelstaw. Like, apparently they are so close. And this man has so much power in the sport that I think a big reason why people in the media are afraid to speak out is because of Ken Solomon. But also, Mm. I think it exploits how tight, like, think about the way the tennis community works, right? Like, Yes, there's some weeks where there are like three small tennis tournaments all around the globe, right? But most of the time, this isn't like every week there's 32 games, right? So everyone in the sport is spread out, or not 32 games, but 16 games. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like the NFL, where, you know, the powerful people are spread out on a weekend, weekend, week in, week out basis. The, the major events, the, you know, the, the big time, um, WTA and ATP events are all combined at the majors. They're all there. They're all working under the same roof for weeks at a time. So it really, I think this is exploiting how the, First of all, the way conflicts of interest work in tennis, which is that uh, Gimmelstab is not just a tennis channel commentator. He's not just an ATP board member. He's the manager of Lindsay Davenport. He is also oh, wow. he he has a production company that produces big videos for the USTA and for the ATP. And because he's at the Tennis Channel, he's oh, credentialed God. for all of these events. So he's people are afraid to speak out people without a lot of power. I don't know about people with tons of power, but people without a lot of power are even afraid to speak out because they're going to have to run into him at every single tournament. And they know that he has beat the shit out of somebody. And they know he literally <laughs> has rage issues. So yeah. like, oh, it's just that's a good point. Oh, it's just oh, that's terrible. It's so gross. And I understand completely. Look, I've been reporting on this. Hopefully by the time you read you, this is up. I'll have a piece up on this, God willing. And uh, it has been, I've never had a piece where it's been harder to get people on the record. Never. Even anonymously on the record. People are terrified. And... It's staggering because a lot of this, what this comes down to is he's really good at getting the men on tour more money. And by that, it means more money than the women. (laughs) That's what that statement means. People just leave out the, then the women part, but 
you know, I don't know. It's it's gross and it's seedy and it's it's time for the people who actually have power in the sport to take a stand. We're excited today to have Anne Floor Markser on Burn It All Down. Anne Floor is a free ride world tour champion snowboarder and surfer who has now directed a film called A Land Shaped by Women, which we will definitely get to in a little bit. But I was hoping that you could start, Anne Floor, by telling me what the free ride world tour championship is. In my snowboarding path, I started with uh, doing street rail and quite urban snowboarding. I look a lot like uh, skateboarding, like uh, getting okay. the sides of the rail of the, the staircase, for example. And okay. then I started doing big air and slope style, which is what you see nowadays at X Games or at Olympics, uh, which is pretty much one slope with, in the park that has several kickers in a line and you get to do different tricks on the different kickers at the end of your line you're being judged on the difficulty of the tricks you're going to bring into your line in a slope style then I did that same thing or the idea of it of a big air which is a big kicker but I did that in the backcountry which is offbeat so there you look for terrain where you'll be able to build a jump yourself with a shovel that actually has enough of uh, like a big enough of space before a landing area where you can land your trick and then from then I started looking at the steeper mountains and started to think I could actually start higher and use that cliff to actually do my trick and progressively I looked at steeper and steeper and that becomes more of a free riding so I ended up doing those free ride competitions where you're being judged on the technicality of your line you choose on the mountain when everyone's starting from the same spot and arriving at the same spot everyone gets to choose which part of the mountain we use whether we're going to take a really big cliff or a really steep part of the mountain it's always about finding the line that has the biggest difficulty but it will allow you to still take it with uh, speed and a lot of charging <laughs> let's say it like this and you were a champion you're a world tour champion doing the free ride yes, yes. yeah that gave um, me a world title it's a world title i'm a world champion <laughs> that's amazing what was your experience like on the free ride world tour as a woman so when i arrived on the free ride competitions it was back in 2011 and on the okay. first competition I did, back then, my boyfriend at the time, he was doing that competition. And me was my first competition. And he said, well, if I'm coming to support you, I'm actually going to ride as well. So I did the competition. and But me coming from video, where you come with like first track, really good snow conditions. On those competitions, they always put the women in the back of the competition. So when I entered my line, I was really surprised to see that there were so many tracks already because all the men oh. went first. So it was just tracks and rocks and it was really horrible plus it was the end of the day so the snow was getting really cold and really icy so the conditions were really difficult to handle. I did my line and I arrived at the bottom and I was winning the competition which was quite amazing but then I realized nobody was watching because the organization of the competition of the Freeride World Tour was organizing the podium for men exactly when us women were riding down the mountain so all the press oh, wow. on the public everyone was watching the other way towards the podium of the men and so nobody had seen our run. Nobody had really uh, understood what was going on for us. And on top of that, so I won the competition and I won 1,200 US dollar. And my boyfriend at the time, uh, who I told you about, 
he became second to last. There were 25 men skiers, and uh-huh. he won 1,500 US dollars. So <laughs> me, by oh, wow. winning that competition, I was winning less than the guy who gets second to last. So I decided right then that I was going to keep doing this competition during that year because I knew that as long as I was participating and as long as I was winning, then I would have that mic in my hands and I would actually be able to change the way they were treating women on those competitions, which I did, and led me to win the whole tour that year. So it's kind of funny to understand that uh, my passion for bringing better equality, better opportunities um, towards gender equality in my sport led me to actually get a, a world title in some way. And at the end of that year, they, uh, so what happened, I actually get all the girls together, we'd make a list of everything that could be improved, and then uh, we'd send that, that list to the organization, but soon enough we understood they were not going to follow those ideas. So I started to put in copy of those emails the sponsors of the tour, which was Swatch and Nissan at the time. And then when that didn't wasn't enough, then I actually started putting the press in copy of those emails. And so soon enough, the whole, you know, in Europe, everyone was talking in the press about the way they were treating women. And at the end of the year, when I won my World Title, they asked me if I was going to be back the next season. I said... I will come back the day they actually bring uh, better opportunities and better quality of competition and better prize money for women. I left. And then three years later, they came back to me and they had actually put the women back on the big competitions with better prize money. And that's when I thought, well, as long as I, you know, if I've been able to bring so much uh, changes in that manner, then if they're really looking into improving the way they they treat women on the tour, I could go back and try to see what I could do from the inside. Hmm. I did two years of those competitions again in 2016 and 2017, but yet it was always us starting at the back of the competition and oh. the first year men would get eight grand and the first snowboarder woman would still get only four grand, which meaning we would still be 50% off. And I was just really getting really tired and frustrated. And and then there was the last competition of the of the season in Verbier. Extreme de Verbier is a big free ride competition. And when I got to the bottom of my run, I was winning that big competition, but I had no more pleasure. I was so tired and I was really needing and looking for inspiration and strength. And that's when I decided the next day to jump in a plane to Iceland to check it out because I knew it was on the forefront of gender equality. And I just had enough with this fighting energy. And I really wanted to reconnect with something positive and and (laughs) just change the surrounding. And that first few days in Iceland was such a beautiful gift in my life. There was mountains, there were waves, and meeting the Icelandic women was such a, a beautiful gift of empowerment that that's when the idea of making a film about it uh, started in my head. And then the next winter, I called my friend Aline and I said, ah, do you want to go spend the winter with Jovan in, in Iceland? And, and so we did. And then I made this film called A Land Shaped by Women. So to be clear to anyone listening, a land shaped by women is Iceland. And that's, that is the subject of the film. And so can you just tell us a little bit about what the film is for people who haven't heard of it before? The film is uh, following us in our journey through Iceland in which we went mountaineering in under the northern lights. We went surfing in the snowstorm. We went snowballing in the ice. But all of it is very gentle and elegant and actually really more about the beautiful landscape. Along our travel, I present what happened in Iceland in 1975 on archive footage, 
which is quite interesting. 90% of the women in Iceland went down in the streets to show the importance of participation of women. And as a result from that day, Iceland was the first country in the world to elect a female president in 1980, President Vigdis. And then along our travel, our outdoor travel, then I present the portraits of the most incredible women we met along the way. What do you think it is about Iceland? Doing the research to understand how Iceland became such on the forefront of gender equality, it was really amazing to me to understand that the women in Iceland brought those changes within society. The first thing that happened in 1915, when they had the right to vote, uh, they realized they still didn't have a seat in the parliament. So they started this political, this exclusively feminine political party, and they went to meet all the women in Iceland to understand what were the problematic for women. And until then, when women were taking part in the society through social projects, but were not interested in politics. And by uh, bringing the, the difficulties of women to the center of the debate on the politics side, they actually brought, which was to be a whole new uh, voting participation of 40% in Iceland, which were those women who actually then started to vote. By doing that, by the first election that, that came around in 19. 22, they actually got their first seat in the parliament, but seeing how many women took part in the participation of voting, then each of the different political parties included women within their political party for the future of the time, understanding they had to bring women within the political system. So this is one example, but it happened again and again through time in Iceland, and which has brought this incredible mindset of Icelandic women where they know they can all be part of building the society they want to live in. In the film, we met quite different range of women. We met a human rights lawyer who participated in writing the new constitution for Iceland. We met Vilborg Arna, who's the first Icelandic person who reached the summit of Mount Everest. She's a polar explorer. And when she talks, she does say that when she started, there was really very few women being part of the mountain mountaineering world in, in Iceland. So what she did, it was a conscious thing where she started inviting women to be part of her ex- expedition so they could actually uh, gain all the technical sides of actually doing mountaineering so then they could become themselves guides in the mountains. And so today there is m- so many mountain guides that are women in Iceland and that was really striking to me because when you do mountaineering in France or in, in Europe, it still is a very male-driven surrounding. When you do that in Iceland, then you have so many women. It's, it's incredible how the vibe changes when you actually have a bigger uh, mix within the people who practice that sort of activities. So what's next for you? Are you doing your snowboarding? Are you doing filmmaking? What do you, what's the next thing for you? It's quite interesting how everyone's asking me and understand why. But the thing is, with this film, like it only was released 5th of March. And so until the past week, I was still on tour showing the film. I showed the film in Russia. I showed the film in Istanbul. And I don't really know exactly. You know, I can't put the finger to it. But, but I, loved, I loved making the film. There was something that was really wonderful. And I would love to get to make another one. Great. Can you tell people that are listening how they can see the film? Watch the film. You can go on any video-on-demand platform, such as iTunes or you name it, and you'll probably find it. If you had any trouble to find it, you can go on our website, which is called alandsavedbywomen.com, and I've put the link on that as well. Great. Well, thank you, Anne Floor, so much for being on Burn It All Down. This is so interesting. Oh, thank you so much.
now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, the burn pile. Brenda, what are you burning this week? I am burning the Ecuadorian Football Federation. In this case, that means soccer. I guess metaphorically, but I'm conflicted about that still. Basically, the what happened was there were a series of very disturbing charges coming from players from the national team that outlined the ways in which people on the coaching staff have sexually harassed them. And I'm going to say it looks like assault from what I can read. Think the complaints say things like, besides yelling and verbal abuse, that they've also touched um, the players inappropriately, including you know, genitals, breasts. They've asked for sex to, to keep them on the team. They've requested nude photos. There's a whole series of denunciations. So I'm not sure how that's all going to play out right now because the media has been really sketchy on it and there isn't much coming coming out because the person is anonymous right now and hasn't been identified, which is, you know, good if that's what what she decides. And it's not just her, but it's about three other players, it looks like. Again, hard to get an exact number. At that very point that this story broke – the Ecuadorian Federation re-upped the news that they were starting a women's professional league. So they've had no response to these charges. It's been a couple of weeks, no response, no no plan of action, no investigation. And their social media came back with this like glory story of, look, we're starting a 22-team women's professional league, just by the way. And, you know, the officials being quoted as we want to get back to the World Cup. Um, The last time Ecuador appeared in the World Cup was the 2015. And so, the you know, it's just I want to burn that. It's disgusting and horrible. And by the way, the Colombian Federation, the Uruguayan Federation, the Argentine Federation, they're doing the same thing. They're all like, you know, saying we're going to start all of these great projects for women and totally unresponsive to massive reports of abuse, whether it's on a professional, sexual harassment level, <laughs> racial, etc. So I'd like to to burn the Ecuadorian Football Federation this week. Burn. burn. So low-hanging but still enraging fruit this week for me. I chose this in part because my mom emailed me this story with like a whole lot of exclamation points. Donald Trump wants to appoint a man named Stephen Moore to the Federal Reserve Board because he likes what Moore says when Moore is on TV. And spoiler alert, alert, Moore says nice things about Trump on TV, including arguing once that Trump should have received the 2018 Nobel Prize in economics. (laughs) So a smart guy, (laughs) Stephen Moore. Washington Post columnist Catherine Rample, for what it is worth, described Moore as, quote, wrong all the time about pretty basic things, like whether prices are going up or down. (laughs) That's such a good... Oh, gosh. Okay. So earlier this week, CNN dug into Moore's background because... Trump wants to put him on the um, Federal Reserve Board and found that Moore really hates women participating in sports in any capacity. Moore blogged for the very conservative site National Review in the early 2000s. In 2002, Moore wrote about changes he'd make to March Madness. Quote, here's the rule change I propose. No more women refs. No women announcers. No women beer vendors. No women anything. There is, of course, an exception to this rule. Women are permitted to participate, if and only if they look like Bonnie Bernstein. The fact that Bonnie knows nothing about basketball is entirely irrelevant. 
cool dude. (laughs) At one point, he wrote, quote, the bigger and more serious social problem in America is the feminization of basketball generally. So also bad at history. Anyway, wait, okay, so it actually gets better. Quote, and while I'm venting on the subject, here's another travesty. In playground games and rec leagues these days, women now feel free to play with the men. Uninvited in almost every case. There's no joy in dunking over a girl. Never mind that I can't dunk. Oh, Can you imagine this guy God. dunking on a girl? Okay. Never mind that I can't dunk except on eight-foot baskets. If I could, I wouldn't celebrate dunking <laughs> over someone named Tina. <laughs> I don't think that man can dunk on an eight-foot basket. (laughs) Anyway, there's a whole treasure trove of these columns. But to make this a little bit more serious here, of course, Trump likes a misogynistic man, pot and kettle and all of that. And of course, one of the ways this misogynistic man expresses his sexism is through hating on female athletes and women in sports. That this is such an easy target should give everyone who reports on sports a pause to think about how sporting culture has developed to make it a go-to place for sexist. Most won't because sports is misogynistic. Rinse, repeat, and burn. 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 So we talked about Tim Anderson a little bit, and I talked about uh, his bat flip with Renee Tirado in my interview last week's show, but it was recorded before the MLB handed out suspensions due to the brawl that ensued after, if you remember, Tim Anderson from the White Sox hit an amazing home run, flipped his bat in celebration, and then um, his next at bat was beamed by a fastball um, in retaliation for violating the quote-unquote unspoken rules in baseball of not showboating or whatever the hell, what I can't deal with it. And so the league, after the brawl, suspended um, the player who hit him five games, which for a starting pitcher is a slap on the wrist because you won't even really miss a start. And they also, though, decided to suspend Tim Anderson himself for using, quote, racially charged language. And essentially... What they mean is that after Tim Anderson was hit with a fastball upwards of 100 miles per hour and he was angry, he used the N-word and got suspended a game for it. And this relates back to when we were talking about how the NFL was like going to start policing language and could give a flag on the play if they heard that exchange. And it's just like, I'm not here for white umpires and white leagues and, you know, officials and all of that trying to police the language of black people. Like it's just, it's different. And you know, it's different. Like don't play coy. He was talking to a white pitcher. He was obviously not calling him, Uh, the n-word in a derogatory way he was just using his language and uh marcus stroman who's a black pitcher for the blue jays spoke up in his defense and he was like you can't suspend somebody for that this is ridiculous this is a normal slang trash talk reaction in our culture um he talks about more he's like i'm authentic i'll speak my mind when i feel things aren't right and i will always defend and respect our culture in the game i stand with tim anderson on this and i I just can't like I'm not and I'm not particularly interested in having a conversation about it either like it it, to me is fairly cut and dry like does it injure you that much to not be able to say a word like it's just ridiculous like don't say you want to make baseball inclusive then suspend one of your only black players on the week you're celebrating Jackie Robinson because he reacted by hitting getting hit by a ball like no I'm just I, I really don't have the capacity to deal with it I just want to burn it down. Burn. Burn. Well, Lindsay, sorry. 
Yeah, so familiar group back onto our burn pile here with USA Gymnastics. In particular, the new CEO for USA Gymnastics, I believe the fourth or fifth in the past you know, 20 months, Li Li Liang, who came out and did an interview this week with NBC on the Today Show, who this is her first big interview since being appointed to the position. And in this interview, she says that she herself was seen by Larry Nasser, but she said she wasn't abused by him. And the reason why she wasn't abused by him is because her coach was there. Now, anyone who's been following the Larry Nasser case knows that actually a lot of his abuse did happen while coaches or parents were in the room. So the fact that she would make this blanket, make this statement, it comes off as incredibly victim blaming. And it also comes out as extremely ignorant about the details of the biggest abuse scandal in the history of USA Gymnastics. And that is absolutely absurd. Your one thing as a CEO is to know all the ins and outs of this case. You have to know that before you can move forward. Her apology was absolutely bullshit, excuse me. But she said, you know, I understand how my comment seems insensitive to survivors and their families. And I apologize. Seems insensitive. It was insensitive. Absolutely, positively was insensitive. I don't understand how USA Gymnastics keeps getting this wrong. I don't understand how she didn't have to go through like 40 hours of PR training in which every bit of information about the Nasser scandal and about how to talk about it was beaten into her brain. I don't understand how we're still here. Whew. Throw it onto the burn pile. Burn. Burn. Well, after all that burning, it's time to shout out some badass women of the week. Honorable mentions this week. Jordan Weber, uh, Olympic gold medalist who you might remember from the 2012 Olympics and former UCLA assistant coach, was named the new head coach for the University of Arkansas's women gymnastics team. Go Razorbacks. Congrats, Jordan. Melanie Newman and Susie Cool were baseball's first all-female radio broadcast when they called the Salem Red Sox 2-0 win over the Potomac Nationals on Tuesday, past Tuesday. Carrie Brown, the senior sports correspondent for BN Sports, was unanimously voted as the first female chairman of the Football Writers Association, which makes her the first woman chair of a major football organization. Sally Cavell is the only woman working right now as a full-time scout for the NFL. She's with the 49ers. And uh, if you want to read a great profile about her by the Athletics' Lindsay's Jones, uh, check that out over there on theathletic.com. And congratulations to everyone who participated in the U-20 Women's Football League in Benghazi. The event was organized by the Women's Football Committee of the Libyan Football Federation. Al-Hassan bin Al-Haytham was crowned champions. And a special shout out to the University of Nebraska's Noor Ahmed, who was the only, who is the only golfer at the collegiate level to play in a hijab. I also want to spend a special shout out to my students, uh, members of the Penn State women's track team who smashed records and took home the sprint medley college championships at Penn Relays this week. So Brooklyn, Danae, Alexis, shouts to you guys. 
Nicole Lynn became the first black woman to represent a top five draft pick in the NFL when her client, uh, Quinnen Williams, a defensive lineman from uh, Alabama, was picked third overall by the New York Jets. Congrats, Nicole. And a drum roll, please. This week's Badass Women of the Week are Yugu and Elizabeth I on their film A Woman's Work, The NFL Cheerleader Problem, which premieres at the 2019 Tribeca Film Festival this week. This film was really hard to make. It centers on Raider, former Raiders cheerleader Lacey Thibodeau-Fields and former Bills cheerleader Maria Pizzone, who both sued their employers for wage theft in 2014. And while in recent years it's come to light the precarious labor situation that many NFL cheerleaders find themselves in, when these women Women were setting out to make this film a few years ago. They found a lot of resistance and a lot of financial backing because a lot of people said, well, this isn't a feminist film or this isn't a film that is really about labor conditions because it's cheerleading. And, you know, these women are willingly being objectified. But despite that, these women stuck it out to see this film get made to bring a very important story to light, which is now premiering at Tribeca. So congrats to you. And thank you for your perseverance and resilience in getting this important story out there. You are our Badass Women of the Week. All right, folks, what is good in your lives? Lindsay? Ooh, well, I've just really been enjoying the spring weather. Finally, you know, been wearing a few dresses and not boots and just kind of really just uh, loving it. I've also been, if anyone follows me on Instagram, I, I'm sorry. We do. Uh, I'm sorry because I have been boring everyone on my Instagram nope. stories with a 30-day workout challenge where my goal is just to do some sort of workout every every day for 30 straight days, just trying to get, you know, get in a better habit. And I'm on day, uh, today's day 22. Um, it's early in the morning, so I haven't done the exercise. But so I'm getting getting towards the end here. Honestly, it's not really getting any easier or any more fun <laughs> as I go along, but I'm doing it anyway. So I am proud of myself for that. I'm glad uh, that the end is in sight because, uh, you know, I think rest days are good and I will, you know, would like to you know, maybe just do five or six days a week. But yeah, it's it's been a challenge. Follow, follow me along for this final week. See if I can make it. All right. <laughs> I'm going to see Avengers Endgame yeah! today, which I'm really excited about. I've made Amira promise not to spoil anything for me. And when I texted Amira hard. to tell her that I was doing this today, she was like, Jessica, that's a lot because the Battle of Winterfell is awesome tonight, <laughs> which for us Game of Thrones fans means I feel like I'm just going to be on a lot of emotional journey today. I wanted to tell people I'm reading a book called How to Do Nothing by Jenny Odell. It's really good. It's about social media and taking a step back and like reassessing our relationship to it. I really just like how she talks about it. Um, it's not like you have to throw it away, but she just complicates, complicates it. So how to do nothing. And then I wanted to tell you guys that I'm very excited because I've been bench pressing for probably like four years now. And I think maybe two years ago, I did the first big step, which like you have the bar, which is 20 kilograms, and then you add weights on each side. And about two years ago, I finally added the tens. They called them the big greens on each side. So it's 40 kilograms. And then I've slowly worked up from there. And this week I did 47.5 kilograms, which is 104 pounds. I bench pressed it. I did it three times each set. It was great. I felt really good about it. So next week, I'm going to finally do the next big step, which is I'm going to have 15s on each end of the bar as I go up to 50 kilograms on my bench press. So I was really excited about that this week. 
That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like Jess said, Endgame, Endgame is what's simultaneously good and awful <laughs> with my life right now. Yeah, Endgame, Endgame of Thrones, but I'm an emotional wreck. So there's that. Anyways, the other thing that happened this week is that classes ended. So that was beautiful. I'm still grading, but you know, it was a really nice end of the semester, punctuated by just the community I have here. I have some two really, really dope new colleagues who are both postdocs now, but they are going to be staying at Penn State. Um, they were hired to the tenure track. And Janelle and Dara have been just the best friends to have here in State College with me now. And they threw me a surprise party on Friday, which is really hard to do because I generally figure these things out. But instead, they told me it was a movie night and I spent all week trying to choose between watching Tu Wong Fu or First Wise Club and finally like thought I was coming to this party and it turned out that they just threw a surprise party for me to celebrate my successful passing of my second year review. It was very sweet. There was cake, there was alcohol, and then we ended up just watching Game of Thrones all night. And so that, you know, community is so important. And so special shouts to them. It was a perfect way to kind of cap off the semester. I already missed my students. I had amazing classes this year. Um, Some really great student athletes, including one for assignment who like casually interviewed Billie Jean King for a random little assignment in my class. And I was like, this is like the definition of overachieving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We wow. can't get her on our podcast. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> wow, so your students showed us up. <laughs> I know. She's amazing. She's amazing. And we'll probably be seeing her on the national team in, in the, by the time we do the World Cup, the next round goes. So it, they're phenomenal. I'm blown away by their podcasts and uh, these uh, op-eds that they're turning in. And so I already miss them. But I'm also very excited because I won't actually be back in the classroom until August of 2020 because I have all year off next year to knock on wood, cross your finger, finally finish my book. Uh, Brenda. Man, I'm not doing any of this stuff. (laughs) 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 Lifting laundry baskets sometimes. Oh, I did that Running errands. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I got to tell you. Amira is two weeks ahead of me in this process, and you can tell because she's way better than me right now. (laughs) I still have to teach, and I'm like, oh, it's that moment in the semester when you're trying to wrap everything up, and you're like, my God, what have I not taught you? Have you learned anything? (laughs) Yeah, it's like like I I already see the evaluations in my head. Right, right. And you're like, no, no, don't let it end like this. Let us end this relationship on better terms. So I'm still kind of there. I guess what's good, though, is soccer season has started for um, my daughters, and it's adorable and cute. And I actually live in a place where they don't fool themselves that they're creating the next, you know, Marta. And they're really just good spirited and nice and no one screams about you know, like arbitration or anything like that wasn't offsides. You know, I doubt anybody really understands that besides the the ref in, in the games that we play. So it's lovely and cute. So I guess I'll say that. Oh, 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 yeah. and Messi won La Liga. <laughs> of course. I knew that one, though. I knew that one. <laughs> so on brand. Yeah, and I couldn't, of course, watch the end to celebrate anyway and enjoy it or else he would have lost. So, but... 
I, <laughs> I, of yeah, course. I mean, so I could only watch the first half, but I knew it was going well. Well, congratulations to you, Thank and you. Missy. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. Thank you all for listening today. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts. Feel free to rate the show. Send us an email if you want to get in touch as well. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can also find information about the show, links, and transcripts for each episode on our website, burnitalldownpod.com. On the website, which is newly designed, please check it out. You'll also find links to our Patreon as well as our merchandise shop. And you can email us directly from the site. We love to hear from you. So again, that's it from me, Amira Rose Davis, Jess Luther, Brenda Elsie, and Lindsay Gibbs. As Brenda says, burn on, not out, and we'll see you next week, flamethrowers. And I saw-